0: So as it was my uh, honor to kick things off today, it's my honor to to bring us home. Now, um, last, the fourth and final panel, Commanding the Commons and Protecting Prosperity. Can we, must we? There's that question mark again. Um, You have uh, the bios, uh, and for those of you watching online, they're also available online, so I'm not gonna read everyone's full bio, but I will introduce our speakers in the order that they will uh, address you. Uh, Josh Shiffrinson is an assistant professor at the Bush School of Government at Texas A&M University. Samir Elwani is a PhD candidate in political science at MIT and a pre-doctoral fellow at George Washington University. Eugene Goltz is associate professor of political science at the LBJ School at UT Austin. Uh, Dan Dresner, professional, uh, professor of international politics at the Fletcher School at Tufts and also a popular blogger at foreignpolicy.com. And our commentator today is Stephen Brooks, Associate Professor of Government at Dartmouth College. So with that, Josh, take it away.
1: Sure. All right, and thank you, Chris, for hosting. Thank you, Cato, for hosting. And thanks, Steve, for commenting. Sure. Uh, Our paper focuses on the military bases of the U.S. presence in the world. Examine the nature of and threats to American command of the military commons. A couple of definitional issues, the commons. By the commons, we mean the sea, air, and space domains through which goods, people, and information flow. We focus in particular on the maritime commons for its centrality to American national security and American economic well-being. And by command, I simply mean that the United States can overcome other states' attempts to disrupt the commons, Uh, enabling it to project military power and engage in trade and diplomacy at times and places of its own choosing. Now, the American ability to command the commons that I hinted at a second ago uh, is central to American national security as well as to its economic well-being. So we take the idea that we want to retain American command in some way. But we ask the question, in what way can the U.S. go about doing this? And the way in which the U.S. can do so is, in fact, open to question. In our paper, we distinguish between two different types of approaches to command the commons. Uh, The first approach we term control of the commons. This dominates political and public discourse when we talk about American command. The underlying theme of control is that rather than react to challenges to American command after threats emerge, the US must prevent challenges to American military dominance and American economic uh, capabilities in the first place. And there are three ideas underlying this baseline hypothesis, this baseline argument. First, that the U.S. should dominate the commons at all times, that the stability of the commons equals American dominance, that uh, the emergence, therefore, of new great powers and new potential regional challengers is viewed with great suspicion. Second, the second idea, is that U.S. dominance provides a global public good, that efforts, therefore, to disrupt or challenge American dominance, even ostensibly challenge American dominance, are taken as threats to the international status quo. And that built into this is that the commons are easily disrupted, that the status quo is good but inherently fragile. This places a premium on preventing challenges to the commons uh, in order to sustain American order and, therefore, to keep American power intact. It requires keeping the contested zones, the areas in which other states can project power and challenge American military dominance as uh, as small as possible. And third, because the expansion of the contested zones is dangerous, Uh, a central requirement is the early identification and a quick reaction to threats. That is, the U.S. must either dissuade or deter threats before they even metastasize, before they become clear challenges to American dominance. The net effect is an approach that looks to forestall challenges to U.S. command before there's even a clear challenge by marrying an activist foreign policy to a large forward-deployed military presence stationed all around the world. Now, To be clear, control does give the U.S. many goods. It does provide for American command of the commons. The problem is that U.S. policy threatens other states such as China uh, and encourages them to take actions that expand the contested zones, uh, while at the same time encouraging free-riding behavior and buck-passing by states such as Japan and, in some cases, China that deepen the American involvement in the region. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where there appear to be threats, there appear to be states that are unwilling to provide for stability of the commons, that therefore the U.S. must overcome threats and provide resources of its own to overcome these challenges. And as we can imagine, this is quite costly economically, politically, and militarily. In contrast, Samir and I identify what we call a security of the commons approach. Now, due to time constraints, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. But suffice it to say that we believe that the U.S. has the opportunity to see if threats emerge to U.S. security before beginning to engage them, before balancing them, and that the United States has the opportunity, has this opportunity, because there are, in fact, few unequivocal threats to national security. There are many potential partners with a vested interest in the maintenance of the status quo, and that, therefore, U.S. command, the U.S. ability to prevent challenges and prevent rollback of the status quo in key regions of the world uh, is not only stable, but that the U.S. can rely upon similarly interested regional actors to maintain the status quo while the U.S. sits behind the horizon and rides to the rescue if a challenge becomes unsustainable or unmanageable through local action. Um, At the end of the day, we argued that even if local efforts, uh, that we argue that even if there are ostensible threats to American command, they are just that. They are just ostensible. And we find evidence that U.S. efforts to control the commons causes other states Challenge the status quo, and that given a different U.S. approach, there are strong reasons, self-interested reasons, regional actors, both state and non-state have, to sustain, or at least not challenge the status quo, independent of American action. Uh, and if we can think about this in terms of, we can think about this in terms of key regions and around critical issues, and vis-a-vis re- particular key actors all around the world, particularly in East Asia, and around strategic choke points that Samir' is going to talk to in just a second.
2: So I'll pick up where Josh left off and draw upon a couple of sections of our paper that challenge two of the major claims that justify the current uh, control posture. The first is that the commons are highly vulnerable in some way, and the second is that there are major state and non-state threats to the commons uh, that pose strategic threats to the commons. So the issue of vulnerability is often discussed in terms of choke points, and one common way is maritime choke points. But one of the claims of our paper is that these choke points are highly overstated for a number of reasons. First, not all the uh, so-called choke points are actually that, that there are a number of alternative routes that exist, even in some of the most fabled choke points like the Malacca Straits, uh, where shipping or naval uh, transit can simply go around these so-called choke points. They can go through alternative straits like the Sunda Strait, the Lombok Strait, or around Australia. Now, for exa- this certainly raises the cost of shipping or the amount of time that these would take, but these don't propose direct strategic threats. They just raise the tactical costs. Another uh, claim about choke points, uh, is our argument about choke point is that closure of these is much harder than simple disruption. Um, the the effort it requires to close these straits uh, requires extensive projection capabilities uh, and sustaining a blockade that's far from home for an extended period of time, uh, which most states do not have the capacity to do. Um, and As a result, they would not be able to provide sort of indefinite shock, but simply a disruption which could be addressed by a number of mutually interested parties or even the United States uh, after a period of time. The third is related to that, which is the idea that other states are much more vulnerable to these choke points than the United States and have just as much of an interest in keeping the commons open and would take active efforts to cooperate to do so. Uh, A good example of this is um, the Combined Task Force 151, which is an anti-piracy operation. It was certainly spearheaded by the United States, but brought in a number of countries uh, in the process to disrupt piracy or sort of challenge the uh, piracy. And a number of other states provided anti-piracy assets, even if they weren't formally part of that task force. So uh, there's a lot of empirical examples of choke points being overstated. The Panama Canal is one of them, was one that was hyped up for a number of years in the late 90s that once the U.S. reduced its force presence there, that it would suddenly make it extremely vulnerable and, and subject to massive disruptions. None of those threats materialized. So we think, again, that these these choke point arguments are fairly overstated and that the vulnerability to the commons is, is overstated. Now, in terms of the threats posed by various states, uh, obviously the chief example that's brought up in a lot of these discussions is China. They're certainly upgrading their military capabilities, but things like the anti-access area denial don't necessarily pose direct threats to the access to the commons. They simply uh, push back the United States and other actors away from China's littorals. So uh, China doesn't necessarily have the capabilities to close the commons writ large. They have the ability to threaten U.S. command, uh, which, but they don't have the ability to... Uh, or they. They don't have the ability to threaten U.S. command and sustainably deny the U.S. or others access to the commons um, for an extended period of time. Uh, Analysts estimate that it would take at least 20 years for them to develop something of like a blue water navy force, and it's still not clear that China would would necessarily want this. So they don't have the ability to disrupt uh, the strategic lines of communication. They only have the ability to push uh, the United States and other actors away from its shores. Another important reason why to to, to be suspicious of this claim that uh, the Chinese threat to the commons, is that they don't really have a strong, it's not clear that they have a strong interest in, in directly threatening it. They have a natural interest in the functioning of an international economy, not only for their own sake and their own trade, imports, and exports, but also they rely upon a number of regional trading partners that themselves rely on the international economy and open access to it. Were they to close that, they would be undermining their own economic interests. Another uh, natural interest that China has, besides the sort of the economic one, is the interest in preventing a balancing coalition from coalescing against them in any particular way. Now, if they actively denied other states access to the commons, it would deeply threaten all the neighbors and motivate them to more rapidly and overtly balance China and perhaps engage in what they most fear, an encirclement strategy of some sort. Moreover, uh, there's a great deal of fear that other states in the region would naturally want to bandwagon or roll over to China, and as a result, it would allow them to sort of more ably disrupt or close the commons. Uh, but the evidence that we see in recent years suggests that that's not the case. Though a lot of states are actually starting to balance internally and externally. We see a lot of evidence of arming in Southeast Asia and, and the East Asian states developing their own domestic naval capabilities and defense capabilities. We see Japan starting to consider the reinterpretation of their constitution in a more serious way for offensive, defensive actions. Uh, we start to see a, more, a greater rebalancing of the burden of ensuring the security of the commons in the region, and we would it, we'd be remiss to take—it uh, would be— Dangerous to take steps to undermine that that natural process. We also start to see, uh, are observing a lot of external balancing actions taking place. Rivals cooperating in the region, or formal rivals cooperating in the region, who still have ongoing territorial disputes, such as Japan, Korea, and Russia. We see new states entering the scene, the scene to to uh, uh, coalesce with some of these uh, these actors, like. India and Indonesia. And there have been a number of naval joint exercises in the last year uh, without the United States participation that suggests there's an independent motivation to balance and hedge against actions taken by China that threaten uh, the commons. The impression, uh, this is obviously impressive balancing activity, um, and it also suggests they're more likely to welcome the United States back into the region uh, should the need arise in future contingencies. We spent a fair amount of time in this conference discussing uh, non-state actors and what sort of threats or what um, the overstatement of, of non-state actors' threats to um, th- through, the, through the international system writ large. But uh, I think it just you know requires a little more going over that. The non-state actors don't actually threaten the commons in any serious way. Most of their actions take place on land farther away from the maritime commons. Uh, and except for a few consequential states, but nuclear weapons they are usually in areas that aren't directly disruptive or, or threatening to uh, the commons itself. And even if they were in proximity to it, as it has been the case in a number of instances, um, they don't necessarily have the, c- the capability to project power or project force, uh, again, beyond their littorals in any meaningful capacity. So. Again, in conclusion for the paper that Josh and I uh, presented that uh, these assumptions that underpin the control strategy are dramatically overstated and overblown. Uh, The ostensibly threatening actors have a self-interested reason to not challenge the U.S. command of the commons. And because of this, the system is fairly robust and resilient. The U.S. can reduce its presence without necessarily endangering itself or its command.
3: All right. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm uh, Eugene Goltz, and I'm uh, uh, very pleased to be here um, talking about uh, a topic that uh, I think Tom Wright this morning previewed very nicely. Right. So I'm going to talk about the economic effects of the U.S. pulling back from primacy. Um, and Tom sort of said, "Horror of horrors, you know that could be awful. Something could go wrong. It could the whole." Global economy could collapse. There could be, you know, wars like between China and Japan. That would be incredibly costly. Would unhinge the world. So the United States needs to, you know, pay any price, bear any burden to uh, 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 buck up the world economy. And um, I think this is an intuitively appealing thesis. Uh, uh, We also heard today from the great economist Colin Powell that. uh, business lacks courage. I don't remember the exact quote. Money is a, uh, a, money coward. Is a coward. coward. Money is a coward. Money is a coward. Much better. That's a it's, good sentence. Uh, yeah, money is a coward. That's right. It's, it's uh, you know, Colin Powell, not known as an economist. Um, not, <laughs> not sure it's true. Um, so I, I think, actually, if you think a little more carefully about the economic dynamics of international tension and of international war, you can fairly quickly understand war is awful economically. It's it's absolutely horrific, um, but primarily for the belligerents. War, it's very costly to fight a war. But at the same time, war reallocates wealth in the world. Business reacts. It adapts. There are opportunities. And this is not just you know, wartime profiteers that I'm talking about. It's not the people who make us kind of a little uncomfortable for moral reasons. It's that there's normal economic adaptation all the time in the world, and normal economic adaptation applies during wartime as well. And so while wars are horrific for the belligerents in economic terms, they transfer wealth from belligerents to neutrals, right? So to the rest of the world. And so this claim that the global economy would become unhinged if the United States was not providing primacy and tamping down conflict around the world is just not not true. So that's the pitch. So I want to be clear, just to start out, what does primacy allegedly prevent? And I'm just going to accept for the time being that primacy does prevent wars between other countries, Like, we're out there patrolling the world, tamping down wars around the world. And it lowers tension around the world, right? It makes uh, countries more trusting of each other. These assumptions may not be true. In fact, I've argued against them in some other places. But for the moment, I'm going to hold them as true, because that's the primacy argument, right? That, that by the U.S. acting as a pacifier in the world, we tamp down what otherwise would be a very tense relationship between, say, China and Japan, uh, or between Western Europe and Russia, or take your pick of the horror scenario that you, you don't like. And um, the question then is, what is the economic effect on the world a little bit, but even more on the United States? If you're thinking about the cost benefit. The United States pays the cost of primacy. We have to get the benefit of the uh, reduced economic uh, downsides of international tension. So I'm going to make two key points. The first is that in an economic perspective, war is a consumption binge, right? War is just rampant consumption, And you want that consumption binge to be somebody else's rampant consumption, right? But that's it's it's by the belligerents. And then the second point that I'm going to make is that uh, a foreign consumption binge transfers wealth to the people who are not part of the binge, us in this case. So um, how is war like a consumption binge? I actually don't think this is a a challenging thing to think through very much. So uh, so hopefully, it'll be a, a, a quick point. Um, during wars, lots of production and output gets destroyed on purpose. You uh, make something, you work very hard at it, you fire it downrange, and it blows up. So that thing is not a long-term investment. It has no long-term future payoff. It blew up, right? It was consumed, right? Point one, wars consume munitions. Shocking. Um, Second point, big wars move labor... In the belligerents, out of productive work and into the military. So a guy who used to work and produce something, used to be engaged in production, still consumes. He still eats. In addition to that, he needs clothes, he needs soap, uh, he needs munitions. He consumes a lot, and you know he uh, uh, is no longer producing. So wars shift people in the belligerents in the direction of consumption. The third thing is, during wars, people need money to pay for this consumption right? And this is actually the only part that's, that, that brings in any, any question at all, which is investment goes down. There's a shift from savings to consumption and the savings and investment side, which you know we generally would like investment in the world. But during wartime, factories get run at 110%, not at 100%, right? We don't, we don't replace depreciation during wartime, because that has a long-term benefit to us. But right now, we're just in a rush to crank out what we need to win the war, because we're afraid there will be, no tomorrow, right? Japan is not interested in preserving its productive capacity for a 20-year economy if they're afraid they're going to get conquered by China and turned into slaves, right? So they're they are dissaving for the long run. They're not replacing depreciation, and they're using that money to blow stuff up to try to save themselves. But it's fairly straightforward to see how all of these things are about a binge, a shift from. Uh, Uh, savings in production, you reduce savings, you increase consumption during the war. So how should another country feel about a foreign production binge? Like if if we were going to go on that consumption binge, um, you know, that'd be very costly. We'd be using up our money for that consumption binge. But how should we feel about somebody else going on a consumption binge? And of course, I'll talk about wars specifically in a moment. But they're laden with all kinds of moral overtones, and they're kind of, I mean, people get killed, they're uncomfortable to talk about. So let's think about a different, a thought experiment of a different kind of consumption binge for a moment. Um, so what if suddenly everyone in China wants a car, right? All at once, everyone, in fact, this is kind of true, right? It's what's going on, right? It's, it's, it could actually be true. But in the sense of thinking through what are the implications, if suddenly there was a surge in demand for cars, for consumption, for, for, you know, think of it as nice cars, right? This is not just buying a bare minimum thing, they're buying a nice car in China now. That would be a sudden shift, because there's you know a billion people there all wanting a car. So there's, a, there's your consumption boom. What's the effect of that? Well, um, if you start with the idea, at one extreme, that the cars are produced entirely in China, entirely from Chinese raw materials, what happens? Well, factors of production flow out of whatever they used to be doing and into the automobile business in China. So China produces less other stuff, produces more cars they consumed in China. Um, so uh, uh, that uh, reduces the availability of whatever China used to export to the rest of the world, making them scarcer, driving up the price. And it uh, Uh, increases Chinese demand for non-auto imports, right? Because all those people that used to be engaged in production in China, that used to be making something that people wanted soap, right? Well, now China needs some soap um, uh, because people take showers, whatever they do, and uh, uh, they're not producing it. So they're going to import more. They're going to export things at higher prices, and they're going to import more soap or other products. But the point is, they actually don't want soap as much as they used to. They're on a consumption binge for cars, not soap, right? So the amount of the price increase on the extra imports that they want to bid away from the rest of the world is going to be smaller than the price increase on the uh, Chinese exports that they don't want to sell to the rest of the world because they're dearer. In effect, a pure Chinese production of of the... item that they're on a, a consumption binge about shifts the terms of trade, shifts the relative price of Chinese exports and imports in a way that's favorable to China and not good for the rest of the world. But wars is a consumption binge. We've got to remember the analogy we're thinking about. And in fact, this would be true of a sudden binge for cars as well. They wouldn't try to pay for all of the consumption binge themselves all at once with their own domestic production. right? So first, they're going to import some important components of making the car, which spreads the benefits of the higher car price to all the other countries that export. I don't know, say Australia that's going to export, ore to China that gets turned into steel, that gets turned into the car, whatever that would be, or the electronics that come from Japan, or whatever it is. So so there is a, a supply side sharing of the benefits of the terms of trade adjustment that favored China, that favored the, the, com- the country on a binge. And even beyond that, China really doesn't produce all the cars. China imports some cars. They do, they, if, they, if China goes on a car consumption binge, they're going to produce some more cars of their own, but it's going to be very costly for the Chinese economy to very rapidly adjust to have all those flows of capital and labor within China flow into the car business. When you go on a quick consumption binge, you're very prone to look for wherever you can find a quick expansion of production capacity at low cost, the lowest cost you can find. And so some of that's going to be your own economy, but you're going to really stretch. You're going to really want to maximize the comparative advantage or the technological opportunities of international trade. So in effect, what's going to happen is China's consumption binge on cars is going to lead China to import more stuff. And because it's a change in taste, because Chinese are, by assumption, really excited about buying new cars, they're going to be willing to pay quite a lot for those new cars that they import. Every shift in the factors of production into the automobile industry in, say, the United States that's exporting to those countries has to be paid for. The full cost has to be paid for by the Chinese, right? They're attracting the money so they can go on their consumption binge. So the upshot of that is that the terms of trade effects are actually different, right? So it's not the case that if, you know, if China really were doing strictly everything domestically, you could imagine a negative terms of trade shock for the rest of the world. But given that that's unlikely, and in fact, in the case of wars, we know is empirically not true, right? Countries at war are in a big hurry to buy things that they need right now, and they import a lot, right? When you're importing a lot of your consumption binge, that actually reverses the terms of trade effect. So now, China is paying more for its imports. The the price of Chinese imports is going up faster than the price of Chinese exports is going up because of the um, uh, consumption binge in China. So the thought experiment, just to, to make it more clear, to have less abstract economics talk, how do you think most Americans would feel if you told them that China suddenly wants to buy, you know, 100 million more cars next year. Most Americans would celebrate. They would say, that's fantastic. We're going to sell them those cars, and we're going to make a lot of money, right? And, and We get very excited about that. We think this is a a good deal for the United States. We actually like foreign consumption binges. In fact, it's funny that trade pressure in the United States, the American trade policy, what would we like to see China do in terms of international economic policy? We beat on them about this is say, you guys should shift from being quite such a high-saving society, and you should be more of a consumer-oriented society. Why is the United States in favor of that? Because it would be good for the United States, right? Wars are a consumption binge, and in general, we should feel pretty good about the effects of consumption binges on people who are not doing the binging. So you might ask, well, what specifics about war consumption might be different about the car analogy, right? Because it really isn't quite the same. It's not just a consumption binge. It's a specific kind of consumption binge. And so there there are a couple of effects. The first is crossfire effects. Like, wars not only change the pattern of trade for the belligerents in wars, but other people who live nearby the belligerents don't want to sail nearby because they might get caught up in the war accidentally. Their ship might get sunk because people are afraid it's going to China when really it was just going to Korea, right? And so there is a regional effect, a spillover effect of wars where extra stuff gets destroyed. But this tends to affect the region, and it's a minor effect. It's a relatively small effect compared to the effect on the belligerents, right? Because it's that mistaken spillover that's causing the damage, right? And um, the United States doesn't live near the potential belligerents, right? The chances that we're going to face the big crossfire effects are quite low. The second thing that you might imagine happens in the war is that um, uh, capital stock actually gets destroyed. So in the consumption binge for the car industry, capital and labor flow into making cars. After China finishes their consumption binge, that capital and labor stock still exists, and it goes back to making other products still productively. Well, in a war, sometimes people bomb each other and blow up their factories, right? And so the production possibilities frontier of the world during war moves inward, right? It shrinks. The total amount that you could produce shrinks as capital gets destroyed. But... You know, this, you should think about, it's just an acceleration of depreciation. It's not, com- it's not complete destruction. That capital was going to wear out anyway. It's just wearing out faster. So the comparison is this is a real cost, but it's not an epochal cost. It's a cost. And, you know, it's a cost that opens opportunities for non-belligerent investment. Right? So what's happening? The capital stock in other countries is getting destroyed, which makes investment in our country a better, safer, more productive investment. Right? This is going to attract investment and productive investment. It's going to open new opportunities for productive investment in the rest of the world while they're blowing stuff up among the belligerents. Right? So again, it's about that shift from the belligerents to the rest of the world. Last point that I'm going to make is well, I, started, I made a little shift. I said, let's talk about wars. But of course, primacy says sometimes there'll be wars. But what if the real problem is international tension, arms races, not actual wars? Because what happens during an arms race? Well, it's, is it just the same as a lesser included case of the economic effects of war? And the answer is not quite. So the first thing to say is arms races are clearly a consumption binge as well right? It's countries taking away from producing productive stuff from investment and producing things that are non-productive. They're not even going to blow them up downrange. They're just putting it on a shelf, right? It's just weapons that go to nowhere, right? So um, it's a consumption boom. And so that makes it seem like the logic is the same as the logic I've just laid out. But there is another problem, which is that fear of conflict might deter investment. So it's not just that you're you're, uh, consuming, but because you're afraid that there's going to be a war in this tense area, you're afraid of potential crossfire effects, or even worse, you're afraid that belligerents are going to raise taxes and steal your investment that you've made in that region right? Whatever the possible investment is, because to fight the war, countries raise taxes. So nobody wants to invest in a place where there might be a war in the future. So tension might drive away investment. That's the the logic behind the Colin Powell quote. But you have to think, again, what's the alternative? So if there's going to be less investment That means there's a greater trade opportunity. It's not that there's people in the potential tense region don't want to consume things anymore, don't want soap and don't want food. They still want those things. It's just not great to necessarily make it right there. right? You're going to make it somewhere else. You're going to make it with where the investment was in the rest of the world and export it to that region. And how are they going to pay for it? They're going to transfer wealth to you. Right? They're going to transfer wealth to the rest of the world because they're going on essentially an unrequited consumption binge. Right? So I think it's pretty important to think carefully. If there are going to be, if through less primacy, less, a less aggressive policy by the United States, a, a policy that's less forward and activist to tamp down conflict and tension around the rest of the world, it turns out that there is more tension around the rest of the world. If their assumption is right... Well, what's the economic effect of that? It's not so good for the people who get stuck in a tense region or who get stuck fighting wars. Wars are lousy. But why are wars lousy? They shrink the entire pie, but they also reallocate the slices of the global economic pie. They transfer wealth from the region that's tense and fighting to the region that's quiet, peaceful, investor-friendly, not raising taxes so much, and otherwise looks like the United States. So thanks very much.
4: Hi. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Chris and Cato very much for uh, having me come down here to speak. Uh, I'd particularly like to thank them for having me come sp- the, be the last you know, paper presenter uh, of the day, so I'm getting you right at nap time. Uh, so most of you can just sleep right through. You're not going to miss anything important. Just, you know, you can, you can go to town now. Um, more importantly, I'd actually like to thank in all seriousness the, the paper presenters for, uh, uh, for the entire day for in some ways setting up my introduction which is, what have you learned so far today? You've learned, first, the US spends an awful lot on defense. Um, you know, If you compare the United States expenditures to the rest of the world, the US is now responsible for close to 40% of worldwide military expenditures and close to 60% of great power military expenditures. We spend an awful damn lot. Um, you have also learned that threat perception has been perhaps inflated, and that, in fact, if you actually do a more accurate uh, assessment of the actual threats to the United States, perhaps the threats don't match that military spending, that there would be ways in which you could uh, cut back. Uh, Another thing that I don't think you've learned, but I think should be talked about, is actually the political shifts within the United States about defense spending, which is, I think, 10 years ago, you could could absolutely talk about how trying to go after defense would be the the third rail of politics. I think, if anything, the last two years, shifts, particularly within the GOP, have made it such that you can now talk about Pushing for cuts in defense spending and get reelected, um, and that you know increasingly the, the GOP, which used to be thought of as the uber hawkish party, I don't think is any I think the hawks are actually a minority within that party now. Um, so this leads to an interesting question: If there are these pressures to cut defense spending, um, what would the you know what would the actual effect be? And as you would imagine, uh, this has caused some pushback from the, those very hawks. First of all, they would point out that if you actually take a look at U.S. national security strategy, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about George W. Bush or Barack Obama, a sort of cornerstone of that national security strategy is, in fact, the idea of U.S. military primacy. So the notion that the U.S. You know, will be you know, not only the most powerful military in the bloc, but will obviously be so powerful that no one would even think of challenging the United States. Um, and the argument that has been made by some, including Eugene and others, is that if we do cut back on that defense spending... Um, you know, and we reallocate that money, either in the form of, of tax cuts or in the form of, of different forms of public uh, goods infrastructure, that this would be a net gain. Um, a lot of hawks have pushed back on this. Uh, Bob Kagan, who I think is the smartest and most literate of these, uh, let me quote this in particular. Those who support cutting the defense budget think that if the United States would simply scale back its role in the world, it could save money and make raising further revenue unnecessary. This is a faulty assumption. Were the United States to cease playing its role in upholding this order, were we to retreat from East Asia or to go back away from the challenge posed by a nuclear Iran, the result would only be global instability. From a purely economic perspective, it would be far more costly to restore order and stability, both essential to a prosperous global economy, than it would be to sustain it. Uh, now, besides the fact that clearly Kagan hasn't read Eugene Goltz, you know, it's an interesting uh, argument put forward. And it's not just been put forward by Kagan. Steve Brooks is a co-author of a um, a fantastic paper uh, with Bill Wolferth and John Eikenberry that makes the case that, in fact, there are significant economic returns uh, for the United States to maintain military primacy. So this paper is part of a larger project that I've I've, uh, been investigating to try to find out exactly what the causal logics are, whereby having military primacy actually leads to increases in uh, in revenue. In other words, how, how do you actually make the money? How do you make the buck from the bang, as it were? Um this is an interesting question because actually in international relations scholarship there hasn't been that much written about this. Um as in fact Brooks Ikenberry, and Wolfworth pointed out. So the punchline I think is that you know this th- hypothesis hasn't really been tested and in this paper I look at sort of both the oldest and newest arguments. The oldest argument is what I will call imperial rents or imperial extraction and the newest argument is one that Eugene talked about which is this notion of hegemonic stability theory. Um the conclusion I come to is that essentially both of these are one argument is wildly exaggerated uh, or somewhat exaggerated. The other one is just simply flat out wrong. Um, let's go to the imperial rents argument, or as I like to put it, the Donald Trump theory of international relations. Um, because if you remember back during those brief shining two weeks when Donald Trump was the leader of the GOP presidential nomination you know, race by public opinion polls, you know, Trump's great insight into foreign policy was that the United States had not extracted enough oil from Iraq and from other places in the Middle East where we had sent our troops. And if he was president. He would make damn sure that we would be able to get that sort of return from our military investment. And in some crude, truly preschool way, Trump was trying to articulate the notion, I think, that there was some advantage to be gained from actual you know, uh, economic empire. Um, empire is the oldest form of, of territorial organization in the world. And the notion is, is that by having an empire, you can have resources flow from the imperial dominions to the metropole. Um, So military primacy presumably allows the the hegemon to engage in coercive extraction. Anywhere where it invades or it sends its troops, it will somehow get booty from those dominions, uh, whether they're formal or informal. Now, you might logically ask, is this still useful in the 21st century? You know, post 9-11, there have been some people who have argued that, in fact, yes, for certain raw materials, (coughs) oil that you could you know, use that uh, military force to extract that resource, and that would actually be relatively valuable. Or another argument that uh, people like Max Boot have made is that by using force, you can drain the swamp uh, of uh, threats, thereby you know, preventing those threats from potentially hitting you here at home. Um, the evidence for this is crap. There's just no other way to put it. Uh, I, I just, you know, uh, this in the pre-industrial age, there is absolutely evidence that, in fact, empire did pay off, to be fair. Um, I think the re- this is sort of a long-lasting uh, thing. If you take a look, you know, most of the ec- uh, economic uh, literature on pre-industrial empires show that there was some gain, in fact, from exploitation. Um, there's considerably less evidence from this in the industrial era. Uh, if you take a look at Great Britain, for example, it actually earned a higher rate of return on its investments in Latin America where it didn't have uh, outright colonies than it did in places where it did have outright colonies. If you look at the Soviet empire during the Cold War, you know, it actually forcibly removed a lot of factories from East Germany and moved them uh, to the Soviet Union. The evidence there is that after the first five years, actually, the rest of the Warsaw Pact was a net drain rather than a net gain uh, to the Soviets. Um, As for the post-industrial age, you know, there's a couple of problems with this. The first, and and David Edelstein has done work on this, for this sort of extraction to work, you would actually have to have a very long-term occupation of the countries in question, and yet it is, in fact, the long-term occupation of countries in question that is almost guaranteed to generate the kind of resistance that undercuts the ability to extract resources in the first place. And, you know, last on this, you know, you take a look at places like Afghanistan and Iraq. The United States certainly went in and, and, you know, used a lot of force, and yet the biggest foreign direct investors in those countries is China, uh, which suggests that, in fact, maybe it's better not to be the country going in. Okay, so we can get rid of that. But really, you know, anytime I can write a paper where I talk about Donald Trump is is fun. (laughs) Um, As for unipolar stability, um, the logic here is one that's, you know, been articulated by a lot of uh, global political economy scholars. Um, The notion here is that a a hegemon can provide the necessary global public goods uh, to allow for greater economic openness, uh, reduce risks, and generally uh, boost uh, economic growth. Um, and you know, primarily, the sort of hegemonic stability theory argument functions on the sort of economic functions of, the, great, of the, the superpower. But there are military functions, you could argue, as well. Things like anti-piracy operations would be one. Another, which Eugene talked about, is the notion that by simply having the largest military, you actually blunt security rivals else, uh, rivalries elsewhere, and also blunt defense spending elsewhere, with the notion that that money can then be allocated towards more productive uses. Um, now, Eugene and I might differ on the benefits of this. He says it's it's not true at all. I think it's a little true. Um, I, I think there are dynamic gains to be had from this. And if you take at the, a look at the evidence, I think it's contestable. But I think there's certainly a solid empirical ground you can you can make for this uh, case, which is that by and large, when the U.S. has been the you know sole superpower, you can point to greater levels of economic openness. You can point to greater levels of economic growth uh, and trade and so forth. Um, you can also point to anti-piracy operations, which, you know, uh, Josh and Samir talked about. And, you know, despite the spike in, in piracy off the uh, Somali coast, for example, post-2008, you can argue that, you know, the U.S.-led uh, Combined Task Force 151 did actually contribute to a reduction of it, although you would also have to acknowledge private sector activities as well, things like actually posting guards on the ships. Um, in terms of sort of historically, if you take a look at the correlation between unipolarity and war it seems relatively clear that a unipolar distribution of power is the one distribution where you are likely to see less war take place. And if you take a look at defense spending, you know, just in the 70s and 80s, the average amount of defense spending as a percentage of global GDP was over 5%. In the last 10 years, and this is despite 9-11 happening, the average uh, global defense spending is, in fact, uh, 2.5%. And you can argue that's in some small part due to the U.S. That said... The best arguments for how you know, hegemonic stability theory is supposed to dampen security rivalries, and uh, Steve's colleague, Bill Woolforth, is probably the best uh, proponent of this, suggest that what you need if you this is going to work is not just military hegemony, but rather full-spectrum unipolarity. The issue here is that if there is uncertainty about different dimensions of economic power, uh, or different dimensions of power, not just military power, but also economic power, cultural soft power, you name it, Um, It is through the elimination of uncertainty that unipolarity presumably generates economic growth. If you don't have that certainty across different dimensions, then in fact rivals might decide they want to challenge the hegemon. Now, as I said, everyone acknowledges that the United States is without question the military superpower in the world, an uncontested uh, military primacy. When you ask the question about economic primacy though, and in fact the Pew Global Attitudes Project has asked this question year after year after year you come away with a disturbing conclusion, which is an increasing proportion of the globe now believes that China is the leading power in the world, economic power in the world, not the United States. If you ask elites based on their sort of commentary, a lot of them, including people in this town, seem to believe this as well. Now, let me stress very clearly right now. That's actually not true. The United States is still far and away the biggest economic power in the world. And I've got a whole book that's going to come out uh, in spring about, uh, you know, among other things, underestimating uh, American economic power. But for the argument of stability, the actual reality doesn't matter. What matters is the perception. And because the perception is, is that China is now the leading economic power, the benefits of unipolarity, at least by Wolfworth's argument, have been seriously undercut. And the only way you can regain those benefits is, in fact, by correcting that misperception, not by doubling down on uh, military hegemony. So to conclude, um, I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever for uh, imperial rents. Uh, I do think there is some modest evidence for for the benefits of unipolarity, but it has to be full spectrum unipolarity. It cannot simply be military hegemony. Um, I do think that there's some interesting uh, uh, both policy and theoretical implications of this. In terms of policy, uh, Kagan, I do think you can cut defense spending, and it doesn't lead to economic costs or to put it in in wonk DC language, there is no dynamic scoring to military spending. (laughs) I know some people here are big fans of dynamic scoring in other contexts. But in terms of military spending, you don't get that much of an extra boost from it for a variety of things. And then in terms of theory, um, I think the notion that maximizing military power uh, clearly has limited returns. And I do think this has some interesting implications for international relations theory on this question of the fungibility of power. Um, when international relations theorists talk about power, we often talk about it in this sort of abstract sense. Realists are very fond, you know, particularly Bob Art is, is fond of talking about that it, it does function sort of in a liquid way that you can apply it from one dimension to another. Um, I think from the research I'm, I'm doing right now, I don't know if that's necessarily true. And I think that actually has some interesting theoretical implications going forward about how you measure power and whether or not these sorts of theories hold up over time. Beth, thank you very much.
5: well thank you very much Um, I'm very glad to be here I think it's been a great great conference very interesting set of topics that we've addressed I'd also like to say that it's a real pleasure for me to be here not just at this conference but at Cato because i would say that in terms of advancing the debate about the future of us grand strategy that cato's played a really important and useful role and that they are very strong and clear advocates of the view that the us should retrench and not just that we should retrench, but that we should retrench in a particular way, in which they also are very clear about that, which is a very comprehensive conception of retrenchment. And in my view, this comprehensive version of retrenchment, which is also the same conception of retrenchment that uh, Eugene Goltz favors and my colleague at Dartmouth-Darrow Press, I think this conception of retrenchment, which is not the only one out there, um, is the one which is most interesting and most compelling as an alternative to the current U.S. grand strategy, which is why my co-author, uh, Bill Wolf, and I treat it so seriously. Uh, we've now written this article uh, with and IS, another one in Foreign Affairs, and Bill and I are now doing a book on this. So we're treating it very seriously. Uh, we are critiquing it. Um, we don't agree with it. Um, but I would say, just so you can kind of see where I'm coming from and also setting up my comments, which is that um, I've been writing about issues concerning U.S. foreign policy for a long time, but I was long very agnostic on this debate, and kind of deliberately so. Some of the other words that Bill and I did together in our first book, we kind of wanted to set aside, you know, what we thought U.S. foreign policy should do and merely ask, what is the U.S. position in the international system? We have come into wanting to address this debate um, in part because you know people here at Cato and people like Eugene, their vision, which they've had for a long time, has become increasingly popular. And now, in fact, within the academy, among the group of international relations scholars who are working on the future of US. grand strategy, you know, roughly 30, 40 people, um, let's say it's thirty. <laughs> Um, I'd say like 25 of them favor retrenchment and five do not. Um, I don't, uh, Bill doesn't, uh, John Eikenberry doesn't, um, Bob Art doesn't, um, Joe Nye doesn't. Um, The list is not a lot longer after that. There's everyone else, you know, Mearsheimer, Walt, Pape, Lane, all those other guys, and different people here um, favor retrenchment. Um, And so Bill and I and John, you know, all at the same time basically thought, you know, Dozens of analyses of why we should pursue retrenchment. But in our own classes and in our discussions at conferences, what was the thing that you could point to by scholars, theoretical, which advanced an argument for why the U.S. should not pursue retrenchment, that it should stay engaged? We didn't see anything out there. And so our effort was to write this, to try and improve the debate. But in forwarding this conception of why we should pursue deep engagement. We are doing it to make the debate better. And I listen to what people, including everyone on this panel, is saying. And I and Bill are willing to update in response to persuasive arguments. So one thing that I will do in my remarks, which is, I think, unusual, but I want to underscore this, is that I want to say for each of the papers some of the things that I agree with, you know, some of the things which I think are good points, you know, some of the things that I think are good arguments, and then I will do the more typical thing of also saying it's things a trap. I don't like.
4: <laughs> this is a trap. <laughs> I know a trap. It's a trap.
5: <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> I'm trying to be nice, though. <laughs> you guys can more be the nice. judge. <laughs> and then after I do this, I'm going to raise one... Final question at the end, which I, I'm going to phrase provocatively in hopes that it will spur further discussion, not just on this panel, but carry over into the reception. And this concerns the significance of free writing. So let me start with the paper by Dan. And I would say that his paper is embedded in a larger argument. Uh, some parts of it, which appeared in an IS article, was really good. Some parts are in this. Some parts are in one but not the other. And one thing, my first comment would be is that the argument of Dan's that I like the most forced Bill and I and John to think the most have led us to update the most in terms of perhaps wondering if our claims are too strong is the argument which is not in this paper. <laughs> and so I would encourage at least working it in somehow and letting people know that it's out there. And that's the argument where he's saying we said one advantage of having U.S. grand strategy is that allows us to get, sometimes, better deals, better bargains with our allies on certain economic negotiations. He pushed back on this very helpfully, and uh, Bill and I, in our book, are looking at this further. I have a thesis student, uh, Keshav Podar, who's writing a whole thesis on this, and we're open to learning that this is not as prevalent as we might have thought Um, But what I would say is it's kind of hard for me to think that at the end of this research that we're doing and other people's research that we're going to find that the U.S. never, ever gets better economic deals due to its security leverage. It's getting some better deals. We just don't know how many. It's what every policymaker that we ever talk to says, um, and I just cannot think that this is not happening. So that's one point. Second point would be, in this larger discussion of what are the economic benefits associated with the current grand strategy, um, in the IS article, in the Foreign Affairs article, we did not say that we thought that this kind of getting better deals on specific negotiations was the main economic benefit. We also didn't even address you know, this imperial rents thing. Um, I, I've written a ton on the economic benefits of conquest and, I don't see them as being very significant in today's world. So we don't see that as a factor either. The thing that we think is the biggest deal is what we called in the article macro structuring of globalization, and that what we're arguing is that there is a structure to globalization. It has certain institutions. It has certain ways, certain policies in terms of how it's set up, the overall structure. That structure was very much set up based upon what the US was pushing for. And we like that structure. And so therefore, most of what we want on the economic front is not getting some new deal. We want to continue the deal that we've already struck, which lasts year after year after year in terms of how globalization is structured. So we like the WTO in terms of how it's structured. We like that it focuses on intellectual property rights and so forth. We like that it's focused on non-tariff barriers, which is a bigger problem in terms of our exports than for a lot of other people. We like those things. We like the IMF. We like its policies. We like that we have more leverage over it. We like that there's not closed regionalism anywhere in the world and have pushed back against efforts on that front. We like, perhaps especially, that the dollar is the key, is the reserve currency. And so on. We like all those things. And so therefore, US interests are thus well-served to the extent that US allies favor a status quo approach regarding the current structure of the global economy rather than being interested in shifting the parameters of the economic order in a direction would be harmful to US interests. So if you want to think of an example, just to be clear what I'm talking about, can use the example of Japan. And basically, we would see our relationship in the security realm with Japan is producing three kinds of economic benefits. One in the kind that Dan was talking about, but then two others that he doesn't. The one that he talks about is Japan may sometimes offer us more and or better concessions in their cooperation in specific negotiations with us because we provide for their security. Um, That's microstructuring, and he's pushing back against that. But the two macro structuring things that I would stress is first, that Japan may often support the overall institutional order that we favor more because we provide for their security. For example, um, how often does Japan oppose the United States in the IMF? Is it because the United States and Japan have? Exactly overlapping economic interests regarding financial matters? They do not. Um, but Japan does not push back in this realm. One example in the mid 90s, in which they did, we pushed back and then they essentially said, okay. The other point that I would note, and this is important to stress, is that when we focus on, you know, did we get a better deal or not, we're looking at an observable action in which The US is saying, I'm pushing you here. And then the issue is, did we kind of get our way? But the US need not be regularly using its security levers over its allies to garner support for its conception of globalization. Ideally, you don't have to remind people, hey, I'm doing your security for you. And so if you don't do this, then I'm going to be mad at you. People just habitually do that because they're part of an overall order in which they are interested in having a cooperative relationship with the United States in all realms. And a final point to note is that this effort or desire on the part of some other states to be willing to help the United States in terms of its management of the global economic order may not be something the US needs in kind of normal economic times. But when things are really tough, when the US position is under pressure, when there's a particular proposal that's threatening, that may be essentially the only time when the US calls in and says, this is important and we could use your help here. The US ability to do that, which it may not regularly exercise, is very valuable. And interestingly, as we move to a situation in which the US is probably going to be you know, less of a uh, overall presence in the global economy, we may need to be calling on that more and more. And it may provide that kind of dynamic and explanation for why things like reserve currencies often last way longer than you would think on purely economic terms. So um, that's what I'd like to say about uh, Dan's paper. Um, I have some other things, but I'll pass them on to you directly, okay? Um, Eugene's paper, um, it is building upon an earlier outstanding security studies article that I'm very familiar with, I've read it a number of times, and it's, and Bill and I are addressing it in our book um, extensively. Um, And so let me say, you know, two things I like about it and then two things I don't like. One thing I like is that it reflects, um, in some dimensions, a desire to update the analysis, from the earlier paper, which focused on World War One, and basically look at some ways in which the global economy has changed since World War I, and therefore factor that into the analysis. That is great. That's very important. Um, and then specifically, is going to look at global production networks. So I applaud that. Um, the second thing that I also applaud in the earlier paper and in this one is that um, Eugene um, does a great job at looking very carefully at what um, he calls, other people call, substitution effects. And let's very important, and, and I've learned a lot from Eugene's work and talking to him on this, and it's a very significant dynamic. Um, so what are two things I don't like? Um, one thing, or sorry, three things. Very quickly, one thing I don't like is that he says the current grand strategy, which, you know, um, I'm uh, saying is, is good, um, is one which argues for, quote, forward presence, and lots of activity. Well, a point that um, Bill, John, and I stressed in our response to uh, Justin, Brendan, and Ben is that a lot of this activity, which derives so much you know, critical attention, um, and reasonably so, I mean, very, very costly engagements, they are optional things the United States chose to do. They are not organic to our grand strategy. And on this, um, you know, I'm not making this up. You know, we had um, Jim Mattis at Dartmouth for a few weeks, and I didn't prime him for any of this, and we were just talking. And his basic point, which, you know, I could have said myself, but he said it better, he's like, you should not critique a grand strategy on the basis of the flawed implementation of a grand strategy. So the point is, we have been overly militarized. We have done some things which are costly and unnecessary. But those were choices. Those were not requirements to pursue our current grand strategy. Um, that's one thing I don't like, and which permeates a little bit into the, um, the final paper I'll discuss. Um, The other two things I I don't like, and I won't be to do in full depth here, is essentially, although Eugene is moving the direction of looking at new changes in the global economy and how they um, may change the analysis from the World War I case, um, there's one change he's, I don't think, yet looking at. And then there's another one which I, even when he factors in, I'm skeptical, he'll reach the conclusion in which he, I think, is moving towards. The one that he doesn't factor in, which I think is the most important is that there have been lots of changes in terms of the globalization of finance, which are not reflected in this analysis. So the focus of the previous Securities Studies article was on interest rates paid on international borrowing. That's an important part of international finance, to be sure. But that's only one part of it. And in the past few decades, there have been reductions in capital controls That have led to a variety of new forms of financial linkages, notably global currency trading, cross-border investments in stock markets, and linkages between financial institutions, both private and public, in forms other than borrowing. We're now, the United States, very globalized in terms of finance. It's very clear that global financial markets are not very stable. Major crises can occur that can be very difficult to stabilize. And in my view, does not take a huge stretch of the imagination to think that a major war could lead to a major financial crisis that would take a very long time to correct itself. Given the degree to which we are enmeshed in financial globalization, and given that analysts don't really understand how these crises occur or how we can kind of resolve them, the notion that the US can somehow isolate itself from a financial crisis happening over there I think, is, is just not valid. So I also have some um, arguments about how global production networks are a lot more complicated than before. Um, and basically, the way many of our firms make things is fundamentally different than in, say, 1914. Um, we didn't used to rely upon these firms on foreign affiliates to help produce products for the global market, but now they do. They didn't used to have tons of inter alliances in other countries, but now they do. They didn't used to engage in international subcontracting, but now they do. And what this means is the distinction between us and them, our economy and theirs, is blurred. And it works their argument, Eugene's and Eugene's and Daryl's, much better when there is a nice, neat, clean dividing line between our firms making stuff here and other firms in Germany or whatever making their stuff over there. Um, Finally, the last paper by Samir and Josh. What do I like best um, about this one? I like their argument that the United States, you know, shouldn't freak out if China can push us off their coast a little bit. You know, right now, you know, or maybe not right now, but certainly mid-90s, we had 100% command of the commons. And we're talking about a situation where on China's coast, you know, they are making that contested. So we're going down to 99.1% command (laughs) of the commons. Well, that 0.9% loss could be a huge deal, but I don't really think it is. And I think that they're making a good point in stressing that. The second thing I like to note is that they're emphasizing that In terms of our ability to continue commanding the commons, the United States has a lot of advantages, and China has a lot of challenges in terms of making big changes outside right next to their coast. That I also agree with and is a good point. Two things I'm dissatisfied very quickly about. The first is that they say we should adopt, you know, such a relaxed attitude towards the commons that not only we shouldn't freak out about China you know, carving off this little slice, but that we should move to a cooperative approach and basically not just with our allies, like Japan, but even with countries that we're not allied with, like China and Russia, that we should move to kind of a shared partnership in kind of managing the commons. And I don't really see how that is consistent with the earlier points that they were making where they said we have all these advantages in terms of ability to sustain command in the commons If we have those advantages, then why not just keep commanding it except for this little slice? You know, why move to a cooperative approach? I don't really understand that. Now, you might say, well, what's the difference if four or five states are managing it versus one? Well, you know, Federalist Papers hundreds of years ago to Robert Cohane today basically say it's a lot easier to get cooperation when you've got a leader who's basically taking Impetus to move forward rather than trying to share among four or five or six people. So, the second dissatisfaction I have, I'm really close, Chris, Um, is that they say if we move to this cooperative approach to the commons um, and then it doesn't work out, you know. We don't have the same interests as the Russians and Chinese, or they start doing things to make things difficult. That's okay, because we'll just go back and just reestablish command in the Commons. And it's like that sounds really hard to me, you know. And again, I don't know why you would give something up that you think you might lose, and then feel like you have to go back when it's going to be really hard to kind of fight your way back in. Moreover, you've given an incentive to Russia and China and other states to develop capacities they don't really have an incentive to develop now, because they feel like right now, if they develop those capacities, they're going to run into the United States in terms of um, it having the ability to push back on those things. So this and the general kind of overall retrenchment argument, I would suggest something for people here at Cato and other places to think about is, there's a distinction between let's come home and let's just stay at home. And if stuff happens overseas, It just happens and we're not going back. That seems to me more compelling (laughs) than let's come home and let's hope that something bad doesn't happen. But if it does, let's go back. (laughs) That seems risky and seems hard. And so until we're pushed out, I say stay there. So finally, I, I know I'm over my time, but I just wanted to raise this provocative question for us to be thinking about, which concerns free riding, which is showing up in these papers and in some of the other papers. Um, everyone who is focused on making the argument for retrenchment is very upset about free riding, very upset about it. And I would note two things. One is, when Bill and I look at it, we see free riding as becoming less of a big deal in the sense of we are drawing down our defense expenditures. Um, We don't find compelling the notion that this is allowing Japan or Germany and other allies to grow way faster than us. And I can go through that if people are interested. But the final thing I'm I'm just trying to figure out is, you know, are there just different mechanisms that Bill and I and, and people who favor retrenchment see and and we can like reasonably differ and say, well, I see this mechanism in play and that's why I'm afraid about free writing. Or is there something deeper and we're just literally processing the information in a different way? And there what I would note is There are psychological studies, including MRI studies, which show that people do vary in terms of how much they care about fairness. Some people really care about it. And some people care about a medium amount. Some people not kind of as exercised by it. And I wonder if perhaps that's what's going on. Um, Because I'm just not really that bothered by free (laughs) riding. I think we're out there. We're keeping the world stable. We benefit from that. And if it benefits other people a little bit more than us, I'm not bothered because we benefit from it
0: too. Thanks. All right. Thanks, all. Uh, you've been uh, you've been patient. So as a reward for your patience and sticking with us, I want to make sure we get as many questions as we can. Please do wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself, and please keep your question short and phrase it in the form of a question uh, so that it will solicit, elicit an answer. Uh, right there.
6: Thanks, Jim Lowen, independent sociologist. Uh, I have two very short questions, one for Mr. Goltz. Um, as, and, and as I understood your argument, you said that um, places that are tense whether they are in actual war or not, uh, that that has various costs for them. And then you discuss the costs. And you concluded by saying we're kind of lucky because the fish business and all that, we're not one of those. I agreed with the first part completely. I was born in 1942. We have been at war almost every year since I've been born. And other panelists earlier today argued we are the most tense In the United States, according to various opinion polls, about our worries about the world being a dangerous place and so on. And at the end, of course, we spend more on war proportionately than any other country. So I'm wondering if we don't exemplify what you're talking about. And then a real quick question for Mr. Dresner. Uh, Of course, we all enjoyed your your attacks on um, Donald, but isn't he merely reprising the argument made in favor of the war against Iraq? By uh, Mr. Cheney in particular, and also Mr. Bush, when they went in, they said, did they not, that the war would pay for itself because of all the oil we would get.
0: Who wants to? Who wants to go first? Uh, I
4: can go first because it'll
0: take a minute. Go first. It's a quick answer. This yeah. is a quick answer. The answer is
4: yes. I mean, I, and I'm not disputing that. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, Trump is simply more entertaining, but you're right <laughs> that um, you know a lot of the Bush administration officials made this case. Although to be th- the one slight distinction is that most of them were making the argument that. The, the oil would pay for any damage in Iraq. I mean, they, they actually refrained from saying, and we get to take the oil. Right. Uh, Trump was actually being a little more sort of imperial in that sense. So I, I do think there was a distinction. But yes, it, it applies to both sets of arguments. And as I said, it's a
3: crap argument. All
0: right. Gene, you have the tougher question.
3: Well, I mean, yes and no. So you're, you're, you ask a good question. Like, has the U.S. paid lots of costs because we're worried about international conflict. I think the answer is yes. Like we could pay less, I think, because we are actually safe. But I believe that, you know, actually during the Cold War, I don't think we were safe. I think we paid costs because we lived in a tense environment. We had an opponent. So some of the time since 1942, we were stuck paying costs to defend ourselves. And there were reasons why we wanted to defend allies. Right. But. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, but those are all part of the Cold War period where maybe we exaggerated, maybe we tricked ourselves into thinking that, that you know, some of these places mattered more than they did. You know, the Vietnam War doesn't come down in history as a, a real winner of an engagement either. Um, but uh, so, I mean, it's true. I mean, these are things that are more evidence of the real costs of war and tension, right? That the people who are engaged in wars and tension pay costs, right? So absolutely right. Now, the question is, do we want to be part of war and tension overseas or tamping down, like us bearing costs to try to prevent war and tension between other people now that the tension doesn't come naturally to us? So, you know, we have actually seen in recent years, post-Cold War, what people call flight to safety in in. Financial markets, like there is actually quite a bit of investment in the United States. When there's tension overseas, the dollar does well, there's more foreign investment here, lots of things happen because people actually believe, at least in some relative sense, that the tension is there, not here, and looking for a place to make their investments that could take advantage, that could sell here, produce products, export them, whatever they need to do. Um, That sort of reinforces, I think, the logic of you know, it's not good for them to be in a tense neighborhood. Like they should find a way to make peace. They should realize that, you know, it's not productive for China and Japan to engage in a nasty arms race. I hope they will realize that. I, you know, I, you know, peace to all goodwill toward that. I don't know, whatever, some nice statement. <laughs> it, nice. All sounds, it all sounds nice Boo. to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's not, I don't, I just don't think, um, uh, you know, whether they decide to do that or not, uh, the fact that they have tension, China, Japan, Russia, Europe, wherever it would be, does not cost the United States, right? It costs them, as you said.
7: Uh, anyone on this side? Uh, in the back. Uh, Mike Rorbeck, this to Mr. Brooks or Dr. Brooks. I think you made a comment that some of the complaints against deep engagement are not organic to the strategy, therefore not fair criticisms or poor policy implementation. But I guess the question I would return to you would be, given retrenchment versus deep engagement, which one is more likely to lead to disastrous policy choices? I mean, I think in a way, weren't the framers talking about when they said, Beware of farm entanglements. I mean, wasn't that part of what they were really talking about? If you're deeply engaged with the world and decision-making is imperfect, you're going to go to war a lot more than if you've adopted a strategy of retrenchment, measured retrenchment that really looks at direct security threats to the United States. So if you could address that.
5: Yeah, sure. It's a it's a very good question. Um And I think here we have to consider the fact that um, when we're comparing retrenchment and deep engagement, we're talking about two different probabilities that have to be talked about together. One is the probability of whether we will be involved in that conflict or not. Um, And that probability is obviously higher, you know, for deep engagement than retrenchment. There's just no doubt about it. The second probability is what's the likelihood that there will be these wars happening. Um, And what we're arguing is that it's much lower um, under deep engagement than for retrenchment. Now, a very important point to note here is that if you could drive down the likelihood of involvement in foreign conflicts under retrenchment to zero, you know, if you could really honestly say, you know, as Eugene is advocating for, you know, if stuff happens over there, then we are studiously staying neutral, and we we do just are just going to let it ride. You know, we're going to let Asia burn or whatever. You know, we're not going to get involved. Then um, you're cutting your risk by a lot. But what I would say is, um, how can anyone ever know that that's the case? I mean, do we know who's going to be president in 2016? Do we know who's going to be president in 2020? Do we know who's going to be president in 2024, 2028, 2023? You know, we don't. And so we don't know if a crisis happens overseas and that crisis happens in part because we're not there managing tensions um, that we won't get involved. And we also don't know that we won't have to pay a lot of costs during the process before we get involved and that it won't be very costly to kind of fight our way in. And basically what Bill and John and I would say is um, fighting the way in is, is going to be a lot more difficult. Um, And as with respect to Eugene's paper, you know, we're not living in the world of 1914 anymore, in which it used to be we could wait on the sidelines and we didn't pay very significant economic costs. Now we'd say that waiting period would be very, very costly economically, and so um, we prefer not to do the wait and say thing. It's too dangerous.
3: I'd be happy to argue with him, but it doesn't seem like be <laughs> All right, probably, uh, right
0: there, sir. Hand up, uh, right there.
8: Hello, my name is Stuart Jenkins. Uh, This is open to all the panelists. Um, But my question is, does the recent uh, flashpoint of the debate surrounding intervention in Syria go with this fundamental uh, argument that seems to be playing out between forward engagement and retrenchment? Uh, And does, I guess, the recent decision not to to intervene to pursue a a more diplomatic uh, peace process uh, indicate uh, or signal the... uh, I guess, the victory for the side of, of <laughs> retrenchment uh, in that case um, and in the context right. of the way President Obama framed it in his speech to the UNGA uh, um, that the thing that the world has to fear is not America um, becoming more engaged in the world, but instead um, retreating back. Your thoughts? Go on. Dan,
0: you want to take that? Yeah, oh, sure. Go ahead. Um,
4: I mean, I think Tom Wright said this, I think, in the in the morning, and I think he's absolutely correct, that, you know, you could be an interventionist and oppose Syria, um, because in some ways Syria really truly was sort of on the far fringe of what you would have wanted to see in terms of, of military action. That said, I think the fact that when President Obama decided he was going to go to Congress to try to seek authorization and they got nothing in the way of support uh, and and there was sort of a massive public blowback against this, That I do think marks, and that in some ways was one of the points I was trying to say at the beginning of my talk, which is it really did mark a sea change in American attitudes about this. Actually, Americans have generally not been fans of this sort of intervention in the first place. It's just in the past, they didn't care all that much. Now they seem to care a little more. Um, And so the fact that they were actually willing to to indicate very strongly their opposition to this, I do think that is sort of an interesting uh, change in the political dynamic. Yeah.
0: I might add something to that. If... Syria clearly did not engage the credibility of our commitments to core allies. Okay, so I, I want to second Dan's point that that was on the fringe. But to the extent that the political dynamic, the domestic political dynamic, and the uprising of public opinion in opposition to that intervention undermines the credibility of our commitments in other places that are directly committed, directly tied to our alliance commitments, then I think we're on to something. Because since the end of World War II, we've crafted these alliances and we've built into these alliances things like tripwire forces, things like pre-delegation of authority, all of those things to deliberately disconnect public sentiment that might have been opposed. And, and the assumption was that when the President of the United States made a commitment that, that when I, my word is bond and I carry with me, you know, the Couple hundred million Americans with me, I think suddenly we discover that credibility really wasn't as strong as, as we were led to believe, but it hadn't been tested for a long time. And, and Syria was one of the first cases where you actually saw that tested.
5: I had um, one thing very quickly, which is that I think that um, I think that one thing to note there, which is that, you know, for Bill and I and John, you know, our view is that um, these super costly things that we've done in the 2000s, Iraq and nation-building Afghanistan, were uh, mistakes and that this is something that um, the American people have learned and that that will provide, at least for a fair amount of time, perhaps a very, very, very long time, a structural impediment on anyone who tries to pursue that again. I think we're out of the occupying and reshaping other countries' business. And so I do think, you know, John Mueller's here that I think that the Iraq syndrome is real and it's enduring and that therefore, when I'm saying I'd like to keep our grand strategy, but eliminate these optional things, which are so costly, I'm more confident that actually we can do that in part because of the kind of public reaction you saw to Syria.
3: But Steve, this is a dodge, right? So it's true. You guys can say Iraq was a mistake. Don't tar us with Iraq. We didn't like Iraq. Rack was very costly. That's fine, right? But you know, the question in the back is a good one. Your strategy leans forward and gets into these things more. But, you know, it's also the case that your strategy has a coalition too. And you guys, you, you and Bill are basically realists who care about great power conflict and the distribution of power in the world. And so it's easy for you to swear off interventions like Syria. But other people in your coalition believe in primacy because they seek to transform the world and make it a better place, including, by the way, John Eikenberry, who wrote this article with you, right, who really does believe in meddling in lots of places to improve diplomacy, to have more, better international institutions, to settle conflicts in lots of places. It's not focused on tamping down, only focused on tamping down great power war. Now, if you want to, you know, (laughs) adopt a, a strategy that says we should have primacy, but only with respect to great powers, you know, that starts to sound like, again, a strategy that I'm not a particular fan of, but what we called in the 1990s the strategy of selective engagement, right, that said we should resist great power wars and great power conflicts, but not worry about, you know, you know the, the old uh, line about we don't do windows right? But the coalition that you have that supports the grand strategy that you are up to right now, it can't do every little intervention that it wants to do, right? Uh, People do get tired. There is an Iraq syndrome, but it leans into a lot of these. And you've got a lot of fellow travelers who would not swear off, who are shocked, who are very unhappy that we have not done more in uh, Syria and elsewhere.
0: Okay. Uh, There... Um, and then I'll get you cool. in the front or in the back. The uh, uh, young of woman in
5: the glasses. Of people that favor him, interventions. Like Bob
9: I appreciate being called a young woman. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's all relative. <laughs>
9: <laughs> so I guess I have an open question for the panel. I'm Jessica Trisco-Darden, School of International Service, um, and my question is. What about the role of our mutual security pacts and alliances in this retrenched world? It seems like everyone's been very willing to throw Japan under the bus today. Not me. Uh, And
8: And not not, Steve.
9: Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that. And in particular, linking it to this sense of insecurity and what that means. Because what we've seen domestically for Japan is that uncertainty over the strength of the U.S.-Japan alliance has led to huge political turmoil. Right? And that has not only domestic political implications, but economic implications and security implications for the region as well, which is part of why we're seeing the rise of trilateral naval exercises with South Korea, Japan, the United States, etc. Um, in addition, I'd like to kind of piggyback onto that question, the role of U.S. commitments in terms of these conflicts. Because in the scenario that Professor Goltz described China and Japan are having it out, and the U.S. simply doesn't get involved. It right? doesn't care, doesn't anything. But we know that in the way that alliances practice in the real world, this rarely happens. And if even lesser allies don't get involved militarily, they often do commit huge amounts uh, of financial resources to conflicts. Right. This is what Japan has traditionally done in support of the United States, Right. even in Afghanistan and Iraq. So what... What do these dynamics have to say about the future of alliance relations or are alliances simply irrelevant in a retrenched world?
0: I, I think I mean Gene could talk to that, but all Samir and uh, Josh both addressed that as well in their paper. So I don't know. Gene, you do you want to go first then we'll,
3: well we'll chime in? Okay. I mean so the I mean the bottom line is that I've said explicitly for 15 years that, you know, we should end NATO, we should end the, you know, in a graceful way, right? We should think about the transition. We shouldn't surprise anyone instantly by, you know, tomorrow, sorry, we're gone. But you know, we should not be in an alliance with Japan, right? We can be friends with countries without being allies with them. We can root for them. We can sell them stuff. If we even feel like it, we can give them aid. I don't know, humanitarian aid. We can take refugees. There are all kinds of things you could imagine doing. You'd have to weigh the costs and benefits of all of these particular policies at different times, right? Because they might lean into entangling you into the fight, but they also might be the right thing to do, um, you know, There are many details to think about, but in the general principle, restraint says, why pre-commit before the scenario comes up to fighting for a particular side where you don't have an interest in fighting for that side, right? We're defending, so the Europe one is the even stronger case than Japan, right? You've got the richest, most powerful country in the world defending the second richest, but not so powerful part of the world from nothing, Right? Why is this a good alliance? Right? We could change our alliance. We could have a nice new arrangement. We could just get rid of like the Article Five commitment as part of NATO. Say this isn't a mutual defense pact. This is an international institution for talking shop and you know nice international economic arrangements, something like that. But the fundamental thing that held NATO together was that military piece, and that military piece is atavistic.
1: I mean, I'll take that point in space and just add on the the, the, the possibility, the fact, however you want to look at it, that. If we look at the entirety of the Cold War, it's, so long as we don't prioritize alliances as ends unto themselves, but as Gene says, figure out what they are vis-a-vis what your interest is. And to the extent that we conclude that an alliance, whether it's Japan, whether it's Sando, is valuable for some objective the United States seeks and it's valuable in a military sense, which is what mil- alliances at their root are. And then the question is, how do you go about getting your allies to do stuff for you? How do you go about creating mutual security? Now, one argument that we've heard a lot of is saying, look, if the U.S. is active, it can bring our allies along. And to push me, pull you, we'll all kind of lock hands and play together nicely. But the other possibility, and I think there's some evidence from this from the Cold War, says allies contribute more to the common defense when they fear that you might leave. Yes, the possibility of American exit is dangerous, is problematic for Japanese domestic politics. But it's also true that in the 1970s, when it looked like the U.S. might be kicking itself out of the world, that's when Japan increased defense spending, offered to patrol maritime slocks out to 1,000 kilometers. That's when European defense spending kicked up. You know, to the extent that we value alliances as military aggregation devices, it's worth asking how we go about doing that. And I think you know, this cuts back to Steve's point that there's actually lots of evidence of free riding in a tacit sense, not in the I do nothing, you do a lot, but in the I'm doing relatively less than I could be doing sense.
0: The cheap riding as opposed to free riding. Okay, Warren, last, uh, last question. Make it a good one. <laughs>
10: Uh, Warren Coates, IMF, Uh, I want to shift away from the military alliances back to sort of the uh, economic global macro structure that you like, and I largely like, um, but you seem to imply to me that, say, something like the rules of the WTO, that uh, Japan or others might cooperate with the US view of what these rules should look like more because of US military hegemony i would suggest it's because they sh- that that i would suggest that that's irrelevant that it's the mutual recognition of self-interest to have such a set of rules for everybody and that there's no special advantage for the United States, or no special advantage for anybody, it's a set of rules under which everyone can can flourish.
0: Uh, so mainly that's for Steve, but I think obviously Dan's has uh, Dan's studied this as well. So Steve, would you go first.
5: Thanks. Um, a lot of what I think happens in terms of other countries supporting um, the current global order is stuff that we don't ask other countries to do and they do without us asking. And so it's a little bit hard to tell why that happens. We rarely see instances where countries, especially in the international financial realm, are directly seeking to challenge the current kind of institutional order. And so in when you see a situation like that, and um, perhaps the most significant instances were various efforts at... Um, Asian regionalism in the 90s, the East Asian economic grouping in the around 1990 proposed by Mahathir from Malaysia, and then the, you know, Japanese proposal for, you know, an Asian IMF in, Asian IMF in 1997. Question was like, those were proposed, why didn't they go forward? Well, when they were proposed, the U.S. said, we do not like this, and it exercised leverage over those countries. And they pulled back. And I would say, you know, that's evidence in favor of our view that at least when you run into these kind of crisis situations, that the U.S. does have leverage and that it partly flows from its security relationship. Um, In that respect, you know, another Dartmouth colleague, uh, Mike Mastenduno, he has articulated the view that the United States, in terms of its overall approach to the global economy, is both a system maker and a system taker. It constructs the system for everyone, but it sometimes takes things in terms of carving out deals for itself. And he would say during these particular crisis moments, few of which I mentioned, uh, Plaza Accords might be another, um, you do have situations where the U.S. is feeling a bit pressed and it does lean on its allies and they they give way. Now, maybe it's just because we're really persuasive in terms of how we articulate our positions, or maybe they didn't understand their economic position, and when we explained it to them, they realized that it was the same as ours. But my guess is there are circumstances where they see things differently than us in the economic realm and that they give way in these situations in part, not completely, but in part due to our security leverage.
4: Yeah, I'll have two pushback points on this. The first is, is that Steve's examples from the 90s certainly happened, but then you're going to have to address the fact that for the decade after 1998 – the entire East Asian economic area started engaging in regional integration and boxing out the United States in no small part because of resentment about what the United States did preventing the creation of the Asian Monetary Fund and, and so forth. So it's not that neat of a story. The second issue is, is that I'm going to be intrigued. I want to see this book manuscript because I want to see if you can actually find... Me too, by the way. These, yeah. Because <laughs> he, here's my challenge to you. Your point is that It is the military relationship between the United States and its allies that caused these countries to support what is, in essence, the U.S. sort of imposed economic order. The book that I'm just finishing up that will come out in the spring points out that, in fact, post-2008, at the exact moment when U.S. rivals could have theoretically challenged the U.S.-led economic order, particularly China, they instead, in fact, acted pretty much like a responsible stakeholder – That was an exact moment when they could have challenged the system. They had no security relationship with the United States whatsoever, and yet they wound up doing pretty much what the U.S. would have wanted them to do, um, in no small part because it was in their self-interest. So, I mean, you're going to have to parse out the self-interest, you know, the sort of economic self-interest argument from the security relationship.
0: Uh, Actually, and I'll close on one. I thought you were going to say this, Dan. You you also have to demonstrate, Steve, that it was not just the leverage that, that was a function of our security relationship and our security commitment. But also the leverage that comes from being the largest yeah. economy in the world, and the and the threat, the implicit threat. It's not just the withdrawal of the security guarantee, the but it's scenario. the economic threat, uh, which which which, fa- which I also think factors in. Dan calls it uh, uh, full spectrum hegemony, mm. right? The yeah. ability or unipolarity, right? right. The ability yeah. to demonstrate this power across multiple levels. All right. So on that point, um, I want to just with a few concluding remarks and uh and we're going to have a reception out in the winter garden i hope you all join us this is the reward you get for sticking with us i'm going to close with one quick story um i started my remarks the beginning of the day talking about how you know uh, all day long every single day for 364 days of the year you'll be treated to the stories about uh, the murders that did happen and the plane that did crash as opposed to the ones that land safely Uh, and i think one of the themes that has come through through all these panels is that um, the greatest threat Maybe be our fear of threats, and characterizing whether or not those fears are legitimate fears or excessive fears, which we might also call anxiety or etc., that's the real danger. Uh, and so I'll, I'll close with this one story. I'd forgotten about this until sitting through this discussion earlier today. Um, a friend of mine was, is an instructor, professor, and he's taught in a number of different places, including in the United States and Hawaii, and then he kind of moved uh, west to New Zealand. He was teaching in New Zealand in 2002 and 2003. And one of his colleagues uh, was appalled uh, at the level of anxiety that he witnessed from a distance in the United States. And he turned to my uh, friend and said, uh, why is it all you Americans are such Nancy men? Uh, Mark, I think, I think this is a term that uh, might be understood down, down under... Uh, but I understand it's not a good thing. So my advice to all of you for the next year and, and maybe even longer is don't be Nancy men. So thank you all very much.